Good, well do please keep the passage open in front of you. And for those of you who are new to us, uh, there is an outline on the inside of the white bulletin uh, that shows you where we're going in the next few moments. Uh, It's a challenging passage and there's a lot in it, so let's ask for God's help as we begin. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ our Saviour. You have promised to redeem us and to adopt us, to pardon our sins, to remake us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that the anvil on which you refashion us is the anvil of your word. We pray that it may be to us this morning both sweet to our taste and yet a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That it may be a sword that breaks through the very depths of our being and yet at the same time a balm that assures us of your grace, your pardon and your power to transform our lives. And since you alone are able to speak to us truly and lastingly, we pray that by your Spirit, our Lord Jesus Christ, would minister your word into our hearts, that we may sense him to be near and hear his voice calling us to himself. We ask it together for his great name's sake. Amen. Billy Graham was visiting a country where Christians are routinely persecuted. And during his visit, he had a one-to-one meeting with a very senior government official. And this man said to Billy, Christians seem to thrive under persecution. Perhaps we should prosper them, and then they might disappear. Well, it was a cynical comment, of course, but that government official was absolutely right. Because in countries where there is complete freedom to preach the gospel, the church is often flabby and spiritually weak. But in countries where there is unrelenting opposition, the church is surprisingly strong. Now that is a reminder, I think, that in church life, more often than not, the real problems are not out there, they're in here. Uh, There is a reluctance among us to share the gospel, and there is compromise. So if we do speak up for Christ, sadly, our lives don't always back up what we say. That's a huge problem throughout the Western world, It's a very real challenge to the church, the disconnect between what we say we believe and in the way that we live. And it seems somehow as if we've almost got stuck at the end of Romans chapter 11. As you know, we've been working steadily through the book of Romans, and in chapters 1 to 11, Paul explains that the wonder of the gospel of grace... God's amazing love in sending his son to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. And then, of course, also the 
transforming power of the Holy Spirit at the work in the life of of every, every believer. But then from chapter 12 onwards in the book, Paul says, in light of all of these amazing truths, here's how you've got to live. Because the gospel demands not just an intellectual understanding, it demands a practical outworking. And unless we live out what we say we believe, no one will take us seriously. No one will listen to the gospel we preach. So last week we looked at the first two verses at the beginning of chapter 12, where Paul gave us the essential principles. And we saw, didn't we, that the gospel calls for a life of worship. And we saw that worship involves a remembrance of God's mercy, because it's always first and foremost a response to what God has done. Then it demands an offering of my body to God, meaning all that I have and all that I am with nothing kept back. And it requires a willingness to be different. Now those are the general principles. But from now on, Paul spells out what this is going to look like in greater detail. Uh, And in our passage, the focus this morning is relationships. So, for the next few minutes, we're going to focus on four characteristics of the relationships that flow from lives that are fully consecrated to God. Here they are. Number one, they're defined by grace. Verse three. Number two, we are committed to community. Verses four to eight. We are to be marked by love. Verses 9 to 16. And we are to be wedded to non-retaliation. Verses 17 to 21. So firstly then, we're to be defined by grace. Verse 3. Let me start by asking you, what is your self-image like? How do you view yourself? How you answer that question will depend very much on the particular standard that you apply. Uh, Some people will use a relational standard because what matters most to them in their lives is relationships. So, if that's you, the way you view yourself will depend very much on the quality of your relationships. Inevitably, therefore, some people feel pretty down about themselves. Perhaps you're unhappily single, or unhappily married, or unhappily widowed, or unhappily childless. And as far as you're concerned, that defines you. But for others, you're feeling pretty good at the moment because the relationships that you want are in place and they're in pretty good working order. But then other people would apply a different standard. Uh, For them, their self-image is defined by ability or achievement. And maybe they feel pretty pleased with themselves this morning because they've got a mental checklist in their minds and they've been able to tick off all the achievements 
that really matter to them. And then, of course, there are others who feel like failures because they haven't done as well as they would have liked. Now, can you see that in these examples, your self-image depends on the standard that matters to you. Now, in our passage, the Apostle Paul says, if you're a Christian, that has got to change. If we're Christians, we should have a very different way of assessing ourselves, because we should be defined by grace. That's what Paul does with himself. Have a look with me at the way he begins in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. Now think about it. If anybody could be proud of their track record, surely it would be the Apostle Paul. After all, he'd been chosen by the Lord Jesus to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. His ministry, quite literally, changed the world. As he went around preaching the Gospel, new churches were planted... The world has never been the same since Paul. He was a man of astonishing ability, astonishing intellect, and astonishing courage. And yet Paul doesn't stand on his track record. He's very conscious that what he is, he is by grace, God's undeserved love. He says, by the grace given me, Now, there's humility there, isn't there? By the grace given me, I say to you, what does he say? Well, it follows on from what he said last week in verse 2. We saw there that in order to be non-conformist and not allow the world to squeeze us into its mould, we have got to change our thinking. Now that comes out very, very clearly in the original language of verse 3 and those of you who are doing a Greek exam this week, this will be helpful to you because uh, a literal translation of verse 3 would be this. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but rather think of yourself with sober thinking. Now what on earth does sober thinking mean? Well it means gospel thinking. Thinking that is dominated by the gospel of God's grace. Or, as Paul says it at the end of verse 3, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given to you. Now, there's a little bit of debate amongst the scholars as to exactly what Paul means there. But I think he's saying, you are to define yourself in accordance with the gospel of God's grace. So who are you? You are simply someone who has received grace, undeserved love, from God through faith. And it's nothing to boast about. Because faith, well what is faith? Faith is simply an empty hand held out to receive an undeserved gift. That is what faith is. And that's what, who you are. You are a sinner saved by grace. Now this is important because once we start to define ourselves by the gospel of God's grace, it changes absolutely everything. It should mean that I don't think of myself too highly. 
Uh, relationally, I, I might be in quite a good space at the moment, and for obvious reasons I am. Uh, I might have some abilities, I might have achieved one or two quite good things, but in everything that matters, I am nothing except what I am by grace. I am a sinner saved by grace. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But can I also say this morning, it also prevents us from having too low a view of ourselves as well. I mean, maybe I don't at the moment have the relationships I've always wanted. Maybe I haven't achieved the things I wanted to achieve. But I can hold my head high, not because of anything in myself, but because I've received the amazing grace of Almighty God. He loves me. He sent his son to die for me. So I'm secure. And I know that I am deeply, deeply loved. I'm defined by grace. And I hope that's a comforting word to someone here this morning. Second, what does this life shaped by the gospel look like in practice? Well, number two, it means we are committed to community. Verses 4 to 8. Come with me again to verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. My dear friends, it is very, very easy to read those words. But if you stop and think about it, are they not a real in-your-face challenge to our self-understanding? Because the Apostle Paul is saying, look here, I'm not an isolated individual. I'm not to think of myself in isolation from other people, but rather as a member of the body. In other words, my life does not belong to me. It's not for me to do with precisely as I please. It belongs to others. Verse 5, each member belongs to all the others. So you see, we belong to one another within the body of Christ. That makes us feel uncomfortable. Because in our culture, we're brought up to think about me, me, me. How can I fulfil my ambitions? How can I express my personality? How can I realise my potential? Paul says, don't think about me, think about we. You see, as soon as I became a Christian, I'm joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as I'm joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm joined to everyone else who is also joined to him. Now that has got to be lived out in the practicalities of the local church by men and women like us who are joined to one another because we're joined to Jesus Christ. That is the context in which I am to grow 
and in which I am to serve. I am not meant to function on my own. And so, verse 6, Paul says, notice this, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Now, there's a wide variety of different personalities and different abilities, and it is quite deliberate. Somebody has said that when we human beings freeze water, we create ice cubes, and every ice cube is identical. But when God freezes water, he produces snowflakes, everyone completely different. And the fact that we're different is entirely deliberate. God has given us these different personalities and he's given us these different gifts so that rather like the different members of a human body, we can function effectively together. Now, there are seven particular gifts mentioned in our passage and it's one of three occasions in the New Testament where there are lists of gifts. The other places are Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12. And if you look at them, it's very striking that the gifts in each list are different. So that's telling us that we're not meant to tick them all off and just make sure we've got a full deck. Rather, the the point is that any ability that God has given to me to help and encourage other people is a spiritual gift and there is a very wide variety of them. Notice the breadth here. Quite a number of them in this passage are to do with verbal communication. So there's prophesying in verse 6. Prophecy seems to have quite a, a wide definition in the New Testament. We usually, I think, uh, imagine prophecy as being to do with uh, telling the future. It's predictive, and there are examples of that in the Gospels particularly. But more commonly, it's talking about any words that God speaks through someone to another believer in a way that will encourage them, challenge them, edify them, even rebuke them. All of that seems to fall within the meaning of the word prophecy in the New Testament. Then also, in the category of verbal communication, there's teaching, verse 7. Referring there, I think, to teaching the truth. There's also encouraging in verse 8. And encouraging is appealing to people to believe the gospel. So if you think about it, preaching is a combination of teaching and encouraging people to obey the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if you've got these gifts, these word gifts, use them for the benefit of others whether that's in one-to-one conversation, leading a small group, teaching the children, or even speaking to the whole congregation. But, use the gift with the right motivation. This is not something that any of us should ever do to boost our own ego. 
See, that's the danger, isn't it, with any speaking gift, that we might quite like the idea uh, of people looking at us and saying, oh, look at that person. You know, what they're doing up the front is terribly impressive. No. Verse 6. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Now, that could mean in accordance with the faith, so that whatever we're saying has got to be consistent with Holy Scripture. It could mean that. Or more likely, it's a similar kind of statement to what Paul already said in verse 3. In other words, remember you are nothing except what God has made you by grace, so be humble. It's no credit to you. So that's the first category verbal communication. And then the other gifts that are mentioned here are to do with practical service. Verse 7, if it is serving, let him serve. Now the word in the original there is a very general word which could be translated by the word ministry. Sometimes uh, we think the ministers of the church are the people who get up to preach or to lead the services. But I need to tell you that the Apostle Paul never, never uses the word ministry just to refer to a minority of trained professionals. Ministry is something for the whole congregation. If you are a Christian here this morning, I've got news for you. You are in ministry. Whatever ministry we might have, uh, whether it's a ministry of the word, or welcome, or websites, whatever it happens to be, get on and do it, says Paul. If you've got the ability to serve, use it. Or verse 8. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. He's talking there obviously about giving and uh, as I was preparing I was rather rebuked by this because I have never preached a sermon on giving. I need to repent of that. Because we're all called by God to give regularly and sacrificially for the work that goes on in the local church. But Paul here is saying that some people are especially gifted in this way perhaps because by nature they're particularly open-handed, but partly because God has provided very considerable financial resources for them. And Paul says, if that's you, then use the gift that God has given to you. And that shouldn't make the rest of us feel guilty, because the reality is we've, we've all been given different financial resources. God has distributed those financial gifts differently. So some are in a better position to give than others. And to them, Paul says, give generously. Then he says, if it is leadership, govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now there he's thinking about those people who look after those with special needs. Mercy ministry to the housebound, or to the depressed, or to the sick. 
And some people, praise God, have a particular calling for that kind of ministry. But it's hard work, it can be emotionally draining, and very often that kind of work goes unnoticed by the rest of the church family. And so there's a danger, isn't there, that over time you might come to resent it. Which is why Paul here says, do it cheerfully. Now all of this is a very long way away indeed from the church going that I was brought up with and maybe that you were brought up with. Uh, As a child, my parents occasionally took me to uh, a local traditional Anglican church. Uh, It was a very large building with a very, very small congregation, uh, a few families, a number of older individuals. So the pastor did everything. Um, He would plan the service, lead the service, read the Bible, preach the sermon, clean up after everyone went home. And in a way, it was a bit like going to a concert, uh, where you kind of turn up to watch somebody else give a performance, but you have no interaction with them, no interaction with the other people in the audience. Can I say there is a real danger of that mindset creeping into the church? After all, we're really busy people, uh, we've got complicated lives, It's very tempting, isn't it, to pitch up on Sunday, uh, sit down as part of the the audience, let other people do the work, and we disappear as quickly as possible afterwards. And Paul says, it is not meant to be like that. Remember who you are. You are not just an isolated individual, but somebody who's been joined through Jesus Christ to other people. And the world needs to see it. Now I know we're all at different stages of life with different challenges. Some of you are passing through this church on your way to other churches in other countries. It is more difficult for you to get involved. But as much as we are able, all of us should try to get stuck in. Why not come a little earlier? Why not stay a little later? Get involved in a home group. Take somebody in the church out for coffee. Because our relationships matter. And so the question that all of us ought to be asking ourselves at this point in the service is, okay, well, how can I get to know people here better? And when I get to know them, how can I serve? So, the kind of life that the Apostle Paul is looking to see is defined by grace, committed to community, thirdly, marked by love, verses 9 to 16. I'm told that it was Whitney Houston uh, who sang the song, To Love Yourself is the Greatest Love of All very popular idea today, I do hope you know it's complete nonsense. The greatest love of all is the love of God in Christ. This is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now my friends, once you've been gripped by that love, the love that Paul has been talking about in the early chapters of Romans, God's love for sinners who turned away from him and only deserved his wrath, his love in sending the Holy Spirit to transform our lives, once you've been gripped by that love, you will never be the same again. You will be marked individually and we will be marked as a community, as those who love God and who love one another. So the focus, obviously, in these verses is still on the relationships inside the church. That means in this room this morning. You will have noticed that there is a very long list of short commands that show us what our relationships in church ought to look like. We can't look at all of them in detail. But the overriding theme is Love. Now that's where he begins. Notice that in verse 9. Love must be sincere. In other words, there must be no hypocrisy in it. Uh, It's not about offering a, a smiling face to somebody which conceals a hostile or disinterested heart. It's not simply a greeting of superficial warmth with no real desire to get to know the other person. Now it's got to be sincere. Verse 10, notice this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So again, please don't think about the uh, audience at a concert or the crowd at a rugby match. Because if you think about it, you don't go to a concert or a rugby match and expect to form a loving friendship with the people who are sitting in the same row as you. But you see, we can sometimes think of church rather like being in the crowd at the rugby match. But Paul is saying you've got to get that category out of your mind and instead you've got to think family Why? Because you are blood brothers and sisters. You've been joined together by the blood of the Lord. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Marked by mutual affection and also, notice this, marked by mutual honour. Honour one another above yourselves. Now we human beings are very status conscious, aren't we? And we do it instinctively. And I know that in a room like this, coming from so many different cultures, it will look different to you in your own culture. But it's a bit like this. Uh, We meet someone, we make a very quick observation of their clothes, the way that they talk, um, their accent, and we form an opinion about where they fit in. Uh, If we're honest, we might say, we might ask ourselves, well, does this person fit above me or below me? 
And if we haven't worked it out by looking at them, then just a few quick questions will give us an answer. Where do you live? What do you do for a living? What kind of car do you drive? And if they're below us, we expect them to show us honour and respect. If they're above us, well, of course, we will show them honour and respect. But the church is not to be like that. It is just not. There is no hierarchy in the local church. That's why Paul says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. It's one of the things that I first struck me after I was converted. Uh, Some of you know that God took hold of me at a church in one of the wealthiest places in the world, the City of London. Uh, The City of London was and still is a very hierarchical place where everybody is acutely conscious of where they fit in, how they fit in relation to other people. So in most of the companies I had anything to do with, the chairman would never dream in a million years of speaking to the juniors. And if the juniors saw him coming, they'd run a mile. But this church was radically different. The regulars included some of the most successful businessmen in the world. But they were Christians. And they went out of their way to meet newcomers, find out their names, offer them tea and coffee, genuinely take an interest in them. It was totally different from the world I worked in. That is how it needs to be here at St. Barnabas. People should say, yes, this really is different. Uh, There are people here who normally might not have very much to do with one another. But what I see is them showing real love, real respect, real concern for one another. And can I say that that interest shouldn't be limited to a quick chat over coffee after the service. Verse 13, can we all see verse 13 in our Bibles? Share with God's people who are in need. The early church obviously existed long before there was any kind of state-sponsored safety net uh, which might pick up the the care needed for pensioners or the sick or the unemployed. They were the responsibility of their biological family. And if the biological family couldn't get the job done, it was the job of the local church. Clearly, it worked extremely well. Because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4 that there were no needy persons in the early church. Now, what does that mean for us here this morning? Well, at the very least, it should mean that we know each other well enough to spot needs and then to respond to those needs as best we can. And I've seen it happen here on a number of occasions over the years. But Paul, you see, is reminding us, isn't he, that all the time we need to be thinking, not me, 
but we. We need to learn to recognise the needs around us and respond to those needs as God gives us opportunity. Here's an example. What does Paul say? Practice hospitality. Now, we're better at this than we were. But dare I say, I think there's room for improvement. In the ancient world, hospitality was absolutely essential. Because if you were travelling from one city to another city for whatever reason, you went on foot, usually, and in the days before Protea hotels and bed and breakfasts, you had to look for somebody to welcome you in. And it seems that the Christians were extremely good at it. Now, let's be clear. Hospitality does not have to be a three-course meal with fancy food. This is not MasterChef. Because it's not about the food. It's about the fellowship. So, in order to practice hospitality, sharpen your pencils. All you need are two chairs, two cups and a tea bag. Is anybody struggling with any of those things? And again, you see, this is really different from the world, isn't it? Because so many people in Cape Town live behind high walls and uh, they resent people coming into their space. But that's not how it's to be in the church. Practice hospitality. Care for one another. Get involved in one another's lives. Even emotionally, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Think of the human body. If I have a sore back, my whole body is stressed and strained. If I have a sore throat, my entire body is affected in some way. And in the same way, if you suffer, I should suffer. If you rejoice, I should rejoice. But you see, that's only going to happen if we get to know one another and we are truly committed to one another. So join one of the home groups if you're not in one already. Open your home. Take someone out for coffee. So, my dear fellow torchbearers, are you with me so far? As those who have received God's mercy, we are to be defined by grace, committed to community, marked by love, and lastly, and very briefly, we are to be wedded to non-retaliation, verses 17 to 21. Now, here the focus shifts outside this building. The focus is on enemies. And I don't know if anybody in particular springs into your mind when I use the word enemy. Uh, Some of you will think immediately of one or more people who you think are out to make your life more difficult. Could be somebody at work. Could be a neighbour. Could be somebody down at the college. Someone who's very hard to get along with. Others of you might be thinking, well, do you know what, Simon, I don't have any real enemies. But of course, while they may not necessarily be hostile to you personally, 
They might be hostile to people like you. Very suspicious of Bible-believing Christians. So if somebody doesn't like us, whatever the reason is, how are we called to behave? Well, what the Apostle Paul says here is utterly countercultural, isn't it? Goes right against all of our natural instincts. Because if somebody lashes out at us, either verbally or physically, our, our instant reaction is to want to retaliate. But God says no. Verse 14 bless those who persecute you. That, of course, is what the Lord Jesus did when he was on the cross, praying for those who nailed him there. Now, it's very hard, isn't it, to hate somebody you're praying for. So, as people get at you, a good instinct, a good behaviour to adopt might be to say, here is someone I'm going to pray for, and I'm going to pray that they have an overwhelming experience of the love of God. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. Because, of course, we can't actually control the behaviour of other people. And sometimes they behave very badly indeed. But as far as it depends on you. Now, that is not to belittle the wrongdoing of other people. And I know that for some of you, this is very personal territory indeed. You've been profoundly harmed by others. Might have happened years ago some kind of abuse, emotional, physical, even spiritual. And the wound is still there. But God says, verse 19, do not take revenge. Now that doesn't mean that what's happened to you doesn't matter. It matters very much. But don't take personal revenge. Rather, verse 19, Leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now that could happen in this life. Uh, God might use the state to punish a crime. Or it might even happen as God orders the circumstances of the person who's harmed us in some way. Or it might be at the end of time, on the day of judgment. We don't know. Either way, it's not for me, personally, to retaliate. God will do it absolutely perfectly, in his own way and in his own time. So, as we end, don't, overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That applies in small ways, doesn't it? Even in a family situation. The husband or the wife says something they shouldn't have said and our instinct is to respond in kind. But you see, if we do that, the cycle continues. And what about our witness to the next generation? Their instinct will be our instinct. And so the cycle goes on. 
We're to follow the example of Christ. Wedded always to non-retaliation. You see, if you pull all of this together, too often the world looks at the church and sees a reflection of itself. And it says, well, why on earth should I listen? But if the world looks at the church and sees a community of people shaped by the gospel in some of the ways that we've been thinking about together this morning, they will see the difference. And by God's grace they will begin to listen and if they begin to listen some of them may receive God's mercy and that would be a very wonderful thing wouldn't it let me pray Heavenly Father we are so sorry that so often we are worldly in our thinking and worldly in our living. Please forgive us. By your Spirit, change us so that we might live out the great truths we say we believe for the glory of your holy name. Amen.